Well, good morning. Good to see you. We'll go ahead and get started, though. I know we uh, will have some late arrivers. That's okay, too. I, uh, I appreciate you being here this morning, sort of a different kind of uh, day, a different kind of time together this morning. Uh, but you know why we, why we wanted to do it this way, right? Uh, I talked to Michael and I said, you know, I really would love to have the world record for the largest Sunday school class at Poplar Spring ever. So if, if we ask all the adult classes to meet together at 9 o'clock, I could set a record. So thank you for being here and being a part of this this morning. Um, no, seriously, we have some phenomenal teachers at Poplar Spring, and so it was a, it was a hard dis- decision to ask you guys to dismiss your normal classes and come in here. Um, I believe that you need to be taught by godly men and women that are, are gifted to do that and gifted to open God's Word and teach it, and so it, it's not a, a decision we made flippantly or, or in haste, but um, this is not something we normally do, but I, I genuinely believe this morning... Uh, that God could change our lives and change this church through our study of Acts. Um, did, did you hear what I, I said there? Uh, God could change our lives through our study of Acts. Um, and so uh, certainly you could show up on Sunday mornings and come into this room and not having read ahead uh, not having studied on your own, you could hear the word of God, and God could certainly absolutely change your life. That's the, the power and effectiveness of his word, um, and he does that every week. But I genuinely believe if, if we studied together, that means some work on your part outside of this room, uh, reading the text during the week, looking at it, thinking meaningfully about it, I, I believe that the Lord could transform our lives, and this could be a, a huge um, thing in the life of Poplar Spring Baptist Church and, and for each, each one of us individually. So in the next 40 minutes uh, or so, my goal for our time together this morning is to give you some tools, some suggestions for how to study and read the book of Acts on your own during the week at your home or during your quiet time in your prayer closet, your war room, uh, so that when you come into this room on Sunday morning, uh, your heart is ready for what the Lord has for us as a church family to, to receive in worship together. Um, and so you have a handout in front of you. If you don't have a handout, you can throw your hand up, and uh, there's some that we still have so we can get them to you. Um, you can trek along with me in that. Uh, that. That makes it a little easier for you so you're not like writing your hand off trying to catch notes. Um, you've got the notes, so that allows you to kind of lean in and, and maybe listen a little more actively. Um, and, and, but you see several sections there that we're going to walk through this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize. It's going to feel a little bit like a lecture, like a class. Uh, but I think that's helpful to us in starting a new study like this uh, for how God's going to use his word in our lives. And so uh, that first section you see there, how to study the book of Acts, sort of big picture understanding. So how do we, how do we approach a new study, a new book, and, and understand the big, the big movements in the book? What's God doing in this book of his word? Um, and so if any of these um, tools are particularly helpful for you, Dr. Scott Kellum at Southeastern, I wrote a book, The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown, with Dr. Chuck Quarles, who most of you know. Um, this is from that book, Cradle, Cross, and the Crown. It's a New Testament introduction, and this is his section on Acts. And so these are his tips or his helps for studying through the book of Acts. So I've taken it and changed it a little bit and critiqued it a little bit. Um, but if it's helpful to you, uh, he deserves the credit for it. So um, you see there are three, three kind of big suggestions for studying the book of Acts. Number one... 
uh, seek to understand how individual scenes in the book relate to the purpose of the book as a whole. So when you're reading a 15-verse section, how, does the, how do these 15 verses relate to all of the book of Acts? We need to be asking that question with any book that we read of the Bible. Um, an example for you this morning, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, that we're going to be in in the next hour preaching through. Uh, it's a key example of how one scene relates to the rest of the whole book, right? So in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 11, uh, Jesus' discussion with his disciples, with the apostles, uh, it's going to set the progression of the rest of the events of the book of Acts. It's going to set the theology for the rest of the book of Acts. He's going to give them a mission, and that mission is going to be the rest of the book of Acts. So that's how one uh, short section of verses comes to bear on the whole book as a whole. Uh, But that happens often in Acts because it's narrative and it's teaching and preaching. And so a lot of times you'll see that, something described or explained, and then it bears on the rest of the book. So we need to ask, how does this section come to bear on the rest? Uh, Second big picture thing, um, examine repeated themes, titles, uh, examine repeated phrases or, or theological emphases. One commentary I read said that these are the key words. You can write them down if you want. I'll go fast so you may miss them. But um, said that these are the key words in the book of Acts. Witness, prayer, word, spirit, salvation, resurrection, faith, repentance, baptism, and signs and wonders. Which makes sense if you think about why those words in particular are the repeated words in a book like Acts, right? The birth and the expansion of the, the church. Uh, it makes sense that those are the key words. Uh, but not only should you work, look through repeated words like that, because um, those will come up a lot, but look for repeated events, narrative events that happen over and over in the book of Acts. I'll give you an example. Uh, Peter, Paul, Stephen, and Philip all share similar experiences. Uh, they, they all have a commissioning where they're sent. They all have a, a proclamation or preaching events where they're proclaiming the word of God. They all have a suffering events where they're suffering in some sort of way because of the gospel. They all have uh, miracle events where they're involved in some way with signs and wonders, different miracles. And this pattern, when you observe these sorts of patterns, and that's not the only one, but when you observe these patterns that these main characters uh, go through, what you see is that that there's divine continuity. God's doing something. It's not just human activity in the expansion of the church. God's hand is at work, and that's why these things are happening uh, in the same way all over the place. And so we should look for places like that. Third thing, uh, big picture thing that you should look for as you're studying Acts, uh, examine all the Old Testament quotations. So Acts, like most of the New Testament, is heavily saturated with Old Testament quotes. Because that was their Bible. That's the scriptures they had. And so as, as, you're, as you're reading Acts, look for the way that preachers in the book of Acts and Luke as the writer of Acts is using Old Testament uh, passages um, in, their, in their work and in their ministry. I'll give you an example. Paul is, is preaching to Jews in Rome. And, uh, and he cites a passage that they would have well known. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. Uh, and in that, in that text it says, You will listen, Isaiah says, uh, you will listen and listen, yet you'll not understand. And uh, he, he preaches this over these Jews, and they're, they're livid. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're just burnt up with anger. And as they're departing, debating amongst themselves, no less, Paul rings out another Old Testament passage, or at least another uh, allusion to an Old Testament passage. He says, uh, Therefore, let it be known to you that this saving work of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And so, so what he's doing there, that's, that's not a direct quote. It's based on Psalm 67. 
What Paul's doing is intentional. It's a climactic point in the book of Acts. He's saying the gospel came to you Jews, was even born among you, and you missed it, but the Gentiles received it. Um, that's, that's huge. It's, it's a climactic moment of preaching in the book of Acts, but it's also a prophecy fulfilling. It's exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. And so if we're looking for those Old Testament quotes, we're going to pick up things like that. So those are sort of big picture. How do we study the book of Acts? Um, moving now into that next section on your notes, these are special issues that relate to the study of Acts. Now, I told you uh, last week in our Easter sermon through Luke 24 uh, that Luke wrote a sequel. He wrote a part two, and, uh, and, and he says so himself in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. That's how the book starts. Um, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what Luke says. Um, if you read different study Bibles or different commentaries, authors often make a big deal out of how much um, unity there is between the gospel of Luke and the sequel, the book of Acts. Uh, are, they, are they two books? Are they one book? Are, uh, can they stand alone? Should they ever be uh, standalone? Should they ever be separated? Uh, how much unity do they have? Do they tell one story or two stories? Um, that's a big question among scholars and, and writers that write, but it's important for us because we see there is a unity. They have the same author, but there's also a unity in content. There's also a unity in what Luke is trying to argue between Luke and, and Acts. And so I want to give you maybe uh, a few takeaways, three takeaways, that deal with the unity between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and why that's important for us. So first, uh, don't consider the gospel of Luke as incomplete without the book of Acts. Um, it, it does end with a promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, but though it ends with a promise, something to look forward to, it also has a beginning, the birth of Jesus, a middle, the ministry of Jesus, and a, and a decisive end, the ascension of Jesus, all within the book of Luke. It's a, it's a complete book. It's a complete story, and Luke accomplishes everything that God desired for him to accomplish in the gospel of Luke. Um, so maybe an illustration with movie terms or, or with movies w w would help. The, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we'll just call them Luke-Acts for, for short, um, sort of a mouth, mouthful each time to say. Uh, Luke-Acts are sort of, if you think about it in movie terms, they're not like Lord of the Rings. Uh, where in Lord of the Rings, there's this storyline, there's this overarching story, and all throughout the story, it's moving these characters along until the ring is destroyed at Mordor in the third and final movie. Some of you are looking at me like a calf at a new gate, so sorry for the spoiler alert there, but I'm not really sorry because you've had years to watch those movies, and if you haven't yet, then I'm not really sorry. Uh, but, but, the, but the story kind of leaves you on the edge of your seat. What, what's going to happen to these, these characters, to these heroes, these protagonists? Ah, we find out in the third movie they actually do accomplish their mission. Uh, it's not like that. Luke Acts is not like that. Instead, it's more like Rocky 1 and 2. Ah, now I'm seeing the faces that know what's going on. Rocky 1 and 2, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a similar type thing where um, you, you get to the end of the story, but in, in the sequel, Rocky 2, it continues the story, even picks up exactly where the first one left off, but you don't get to the end of Rocky 1 and, and you're not left with a cliffhanger, like what's going to happen. You watch the end of Rocky 1 and you feel some resolve, right? Like he goes round for round, toe-to-toe -to -toe with Apollo Creed. He makes it to the end and he's, you know, uh, Adrian! There's an end to Rocky, Rocky 1. You don't need part 2 to feel resolve. And that's sort of what we feel with Luke and Acts. You get to the end of Luke, 
Christ is king. He's victor. He raises from the dead and he, he ascends to go to heaven to be seated in the, at the right hand of the Father. There's a conclusion there. Acts picks it up and carries it further. Uh, and so that's sort of the relationship, the dynamic between these two books. Uh, second, as far as the unity between the two books, the sequel, Acts, uh, builds upon the first, the Gospel of Luke. Let me give you an example. Um, a lot of scholars, writers, authors will tell you that there's zero evidence in Luke's gospel uh, for substitutionary atonement. Now, those are big, big words, $2 words. What I mean there is that in the gospel of Luke, some writers will tell you there's no evidence that, that Christ's death was a substitution for, that he was dying in the place of sinners, that it was some sort of uh, exchange being made there. But you get to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and explicitly, Luke says, the same writer says, Jesus, the shepherd of the church, which he purchased with his own blood. So it's clear, clearly there in Luke's thinking. Uh, it's just that in the gospel of Luke, he doesn't use those words to describe it. He's giving you the narrative. He's showing you the timeline and the story. And then you get to the gospel of Acts, and he builds the theology upon the story. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's building there. Um, so you see that relationship between the sequel and the first. Um, third thing that you see as far as the unity of Luke-Acts. Um, it's fitting to see forward-pointing references in Luke that you may have missed until you get to the book of Acts, until you read the book of Acts. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, in Luke, uh, you have uh, John the Baptist, and he's preaching. He proclaims, I baptize you with water, but one's coming after me who's more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and with fire. And that's Luke chapter 3. If you had read that, think about it. If you, if you read that in Luke 3, you've never read the Bible. You have no knowledge of the scriptures. You just read Luke's gospel. You read that back in chapter 3. You make it through the end of Luke 24. And you go into the book of Acts. And, 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 and you continue reading there. Uh, and with no knowledge, right? With no knowledge of, of, of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Imagine how overjoyed you are when you get to Acts chapter 1 and you read Luke, the same author, say, he's again citing Jesus, uh, uh, you heard from me that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's getting close. Not many days from now. It's happening. Exactly what, what John had been preaching about in Luke 3 is happening now. Jesus has said so and confirmed it again in Acts chapter 1. So you see how they're, they're connected there. There's a, there's a purpose. These markers are in Luke, and they show up again in Acts to show that Jesus is fulfilling. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. And when you're reading through, um, imagine just reading it for the first time and going, Aha! Christ is the one. The Spirit is absolutely what John was talking about, and Jesus says that's about to happen. You can imagine how overjoyed um, those, those believers were in that time and how we should be as well. So those are some issues in dealing with a, a part one, part two uh, type of book. Here's the bigger issue in the book of Acts. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit more of our time. And if you've been kind of zoned out, this is where I would ask you to lean in because this is really important. Uh, here's the bigger issue in the book of Acts. How do we know when Acts is being prescriptive and descriptive? Um, those are big words. I'll circle back and explain them in a minute. Uh, but how do we know when Acts is being prescriptive or descriptive? This is hands down the number one issue that different churches, denominations, individuals deal with with the book of Acts. This is the number one issue. Uh, and let me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, imagine we took just a copy of the book of Acts, 
uh, just a little pamphlet of the book of Acts, and handed it to a hundred different people from different backgrounds, Pentecostal background, Methodist background, Baptist background, Assemblies of God background, and we asked them, read this, the book of Acts, what does this mean historically for the first century church? What happened in the first century among the people of God after reading this book? Tell me what happened. What we would find is that almost all of them, Almost every person in that hundred-person pool would come to the exact same understanding of what it meant historically about what happened back then. It's straightforward, right? Here it is. The Spirit, this is what the Spirit was doing. This is what Jesus said. Here's what the apostles' ministry looked like. Here's what they were doing. Here's what they said. That's, that's pretty straightforward. That's easy to understand historically what was happening in the first century by reading the book of Acts. The difficulty and the problem is When you begin to ask, what does that mean for us today? How do we apply this? How do we take Acts and and what was happening historically with the the first century believers and apply it today, in our time, in our culture? And this is where you get different denominations and, and church practices and cultures from because we understand that differently. We interpret that differently. We apply things very differently. Um... And so this is where those two big words, prescriptive and descriptive, are really helpful. Let me explain those or give you a definition for them because that may help. When I say prescriptive, what I mean is something that we should still be doing, right? So if it it helps you remember, uh, we got a pharmacist among us this morning. A pharmacist gives you a prescription, right? That's something you should be doing if you want to get better. If you want to get well, you should do what that pharmacist prescribes for you, right? Prescription. So in, in, the, in the book of Acts, we're going to see some things that are prescriptive. Church, go and do this, right? But you're also going to have description or, or descriptive things. Uh, and that means something that they did. <laughs> it's something historical that happened uh, to them. It's something that happened in the past that we don't necessarily imitate. It's something we don't go and do like they did, right? If it helps, uh, descriptive, it just means his, historical. It's what happened then. It's a description of history. Let me give you some examples. Are y'all trekking with me? Does that make sense? I'm trying to read you guys if that's, if that's helpful or not. Let me give you some examples from Scripture, and I'll show you what I mean. I think it may be a little more clear to us. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, uh, in verses 5 through 17, you see Samaritans that believe, they believe upon Christ, and after, some period after they believed, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit, and it, and it is accompanied by signs and miracles. They begin to uh, see exorcisms happen and, and, and paralysis healed and the sick uh, made well. And so the question is, when we read Acts chapter 8, should we expect those experiences with salvation now? Should we expect to be born again and then sometime after... Uh, be given the Holy Spirit, and then when we're given the Holy Spirit, those signs and wonders and miracles start happening in our lives. A lot of Pentecostal traditions, a lot of assemblies of gods, a lot of different denominations around the world would say, yes, that is what we should expect. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we should expect today. Many other traditions, other denominations would say, no. It's a question of prescription or description. Is it, is it prescribing what we should expect today and do today, or is it descriptive of what happened to them then? Another example, Acts chapter 16, Paul's walking down the street and uh, a demon-possessed girl comes up and says something true, by the way, you preach Jesus, the way of salvation. And she repeats this, it says numerous times, and it it made Paul mad, it ticked him off. And so he, he says, I command you in the name of Christ to come out of her. 
And it did. The demon left her. And so the question is, is this passage, Acts chapter 16, is it giving us a recipe for dealing with the demonic? Is it giving us a step-by-step, here's what you do and the demon leaves? Or is it simply describing what Paul's ministry looked like, what the apostles' ministry looked like? This is not a problem that's unique to Acts. You could, you could apply it to the rest of the New Testament as well, even with the, the Gospels. As we just walked through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus walked on water. Does that mean we should load up after church today and go over to, to Falls Lake and, and try it for ourselves? No. Or, or, better yet, we, we love to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And in, in, the, in the 90s and 2000s, we even wore bracelets with the, the letters, WWJD, to, to remind us, to ask, what would Jesus do? We love to ask that, and we should ask that. And ethically, that's a good question to ask, but I don't see any of us attempting to practice Jesus' actions at a funeral. He goes to a funeral, he goes in with the little girl, he takes her by the hand and lifts her out of death. I don't see any of you attempting to do that. So the question is, um, prescription or description? Is it prescribing something or is it describing something? Are you trekking with him? Does that make sense? Are we on the same page? Let me give you, now that we're understanding those two terms and the categories there, let me give you five helps, as quickly as I can, for asking this question. As you're reading the text of Acts at home and studying the, 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 the text of Acts, you can ask these five questions, and I think it'll help us get at, is this descriptive or prescriptive? So number one, note the transitional nature of Acts, right? So this, this takes place, this book is taking place in a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. That's, that's exactly what's happening in this book. So an example, uh, casting lots, that's a familiar term. Casting lots to determine God's will was fairly common in the Old Testament. Fourteen times that happens uh, where they cast lots to determine what God's plan is or God's will is. However, it only happens twice in the New Testament. And one of them happens at the hands of, of Roman uh, soldiers for Jesus' robe at his crucifixion. The only other time you see that happening, casting lots in the New Testament, uh, was for Matthias to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. So um, when, when similar events are, are taking place, when similar choices are being made in the New Testament, uh, for example, the selection of the, of, the, of the seven in Acts chapter 6, or the, the, the ministry assignments and the locations that the disciples will go in Acts chapter 16, they don't use casting of lots. That practice doesn't take place anymore. And I don't think, last time I checked, we don't use it here at Poplar Spring to decide who our deacons are going to be. We have an election coming up this summer. Uh, I don't see anybody suggesting we break out the dice and start rolling to see who our deacons are going to be this, this next term. Um, why is that? Why, why is that? Well, this is happening during a transition, a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes this practice obsolete. Although it was not condemned or wrong for pre-Pentecost disciples. Um, and their selection of Matthias. Uh, Christian communes from the 60s, 70s, and 80s still use this practice for making decisions like this, and they cited the book of Acts as their reason for doing so. It's a misunderstanding. It's a confusing of what's prescriptive and descriptive in the book of Acts. Second, maybe help to you as you read the book of Acts concerning this issue, don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anyone that advises people to jump to conclusions too quickly. Like, that's a word of advice. You go to your doctor and, you know, they, they tell you, you know, you got an ingrown toenail. And they're like, well, let's cut the thing off. You know, don't jump to conclusions. That's never good advice. But we all do it from time to time. We all are guilty of it from, from time to time. Um, 
And, and there are many texts in the book of Acts that seem to advocate something strange, something unusual. But if we're patient and we, and we wrestle with the text, most of the time what we find is that there's no direct command given in that passage for us to continue in. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, a common misunderstanding of the early church in our day, so believers today, a misunderstanding that they have of the, of the early church, is that this, it's this idea of, of sharing all things, right? Um, and this being a model for modern believers to follow, um, like a common pool sort of mentality. And when you have that mentality, they usually base it on Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, um, sort of, a, a, sort of a, a Christian socialism, like let's all have everything and you own and I own. And, um, and in this view, if that's what you hold to rigidly, that sort of view, um, then oftentimes what you see is that that is explained by like Ananias and Sapphira, when you get to Ananias and Sapphira, that they're killed by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the believers don't, don't, don't kill them or execute them. They're killed by the Holy Spirit. And if you're holding to that view, they're killed by the Holy Spirit for keeping parts of the, of the proceeds for selling a piece of land that was their personal property, right? They sold this land. It was theirs. They kept some of the money and God killed them. But however, if you, if you look closer at what takes place, uh, even in Peter's criticism of Ananias and Sapphira, even in his rebuking of them, um, it's not about keeping money for themselves. It's about lying about the money that they kept for themselves. Um, and in fact, Peter, even in his, even in his rebuke, um, he, he confirms, he affirms the legitimate control of personal property, uh, that you can have personal property. Look at what he says. I mean, you don't have to open your Bibles, but... Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 4, Peter speaking to them, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your hearts? You have lied not to men, but to God. And so it, the sin was not keeping the money. The sin was self-serving dishonesty. That was the, the sin in their hearts. And so uh, note the, the transitional nature of the book. Note the, uh, the, the, the fact that we shouldn't jump to conclusions. When we see something in the book of Acts, we shouldn't just immediately go, oh, let's build a theology around that. Third thing, though, ask if the story is being presented as extraordinary, right? Ask, is Luke presenting this as the writer of the book? Is he presenting this to me as extraordinary? We should not, um, we should expect an all-powerful God who has all, powerful in the, all power in the universe to break the patterns of this world to glorify himself. We should expect that in our day and in theirs. Uh, and so when we're studying the book of Acts, um, we should ask, does Luke present this to me as something out of the ordinary that God's doing uniquely at this time? Uh, an example, there's, there's nothing stranger in my mind than the church's uh, preoccupation with so-called prayer cloths, all right? Uh, and, and, and quite a number of, of TV evangelists have promoted their version of this thing. You know, you, you buy this thing, and I'll anoint it, and I'll send it to you in the mail, and it'll make you well, and all that, that sort of jazz. And when they do that, they cite Acts 19, verse 12, as their reason, their biblical reason for doing it. Acts chapter 19, verse 12. So that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. So, does this verse, 19 verse 12, support that we still do this today? No. 
No, and in no way. Let me just say this. If you're walking around this church property and you find one of my old dirty handkerchiefs laying around, throw that thing or th- throw it away. Burn it. Get rid of it because it's not going to do anything for you except for maybe get you sick. Uh, and, and let me tell you another little piece of advice. Neither, neither will any other preacher's uh, dirty handkerchief do anything for you. How do we know? Well, in Acts chapter 19, the same passage, Luke is describing this event in the passive voice. And so it's not even clear to us that Paul himself was personally involved in distributing these items. We just know that it was done. Uh, further, these things are distri- described in Luke, uh, by Luke as extraordinary miracles. His words, extraordinary miracles. So think about that for a second. What is a miracle? What's a miracle? It's, it's something out of the ordinary. It's by definition something that happens that's not ordinary. You know? It's not the way God's working every day. That's why it's a miracle. And by the fact that this thing is called an extraordinary miracle, he's saying, Luke's saying, this is something extraordinary out of the ordinary. Uh, and so surely something that the Bible describes as extraordinarily out of the ordinary, it would not be something that we should practice today as commonplace. Does that make sense? It's being described to us as something out of the ordinary. It's a, it's a confusion between prescriptive and descriptive. Number four, we've got two more. Uh, look at the rest of the book of Acts for a repeating pattern. And we've sort of already mentioned this with the casting of lots. It happened in Acts chapter 1 as a way to discern God's will. They were not condemned for doing it that way. And in fact, God used it to bring about the number of the apostles to 12, the, the number that they uh, were supposed to be. And, and yet, throughout the rest of the book, there's not ever mention of them using this method again to elect officers of the church. Um, so the conclusion for us should be casting of lots for believers today is not prescribed of the text. It's just merely descriptive of something that they did for a unique time in the history of the church. Number five, look through the rest of the New Testament for a repeating pattern. Look at the rest of the New Testament for a repeating pattern. Uh, Not only Acts, but all the New Testament. See what the apostles are doing as they're continuing their ministry and as they're writing epistles to churches. Are they commanding, expecting other churches to do those things? Um, if not, you can bet it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Um, an example, again, we've already mentioned this one in Acts chapter 8. Samaritans believed upon Christ. There was this period of, of, of time when they were not filled by the Holy Spirit, um, but then they are, and they immediately began um, seeing miracles and signs and wonders. And some denominations would come and say, See, you're saved, and there's this period of time, and then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit where you receive the Holy Spirit. If you read the rest of Scripture, we see this is not the norm. In fact, you don't see it again. It's the exception. Um, even in Luke, Acts, uh, I mean, even, even in Acts, Luke says that this is a problem. Um, they were expecting to see the Holy Spirit, and they were not. That's why they went and they laid hands on them. What's going on here? Why have they not been filled? It was an exception. It was a strange thing that it didn't. Uh, it was out of the ordinary. And you go to uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 44. You see, even within the book of Acts, uh, the reception of the Holy Spirit is clearly noted, and it's, and it's virtually synonymous with belief, salvation. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. You go to Romans, and Paul writes and in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, um, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there's no category in which you belong to Christ, saved, and you don't have the Spirit of God. And so check the rest of the New Testament. That's how we can confirm what's going on and whether it's prescription or description. Um, let's continue. In the, in the few moments that we have left, 
We've talked a lot about technical things uh, and in studying the book of Acts. How do we approach the book of Acts? How do we understand it? In the time that we have left, though, this morning, I want to look at studying Acts with a right heart. And how do we approach it, not with our minds, but with our hearts? Um, What way should we come at Acts? And so uh, it's a bit different in that Acts, as you study Acts, it involves history. You're studying history. And so I want to give us some thoughts on the attitude of the the heart as we approach a historical endeavor, right? Uh, So number one, you see these in your notes, we don't approach it like cold scholars. We need to reject this this idea of a cold scholar that that our purpose is merely to analyze dates and events and places and people like we're cramming for a history test. Uh, Instead, our goal is to allow the message of this book to transform our hearts and lead us into mission. Um, And so we must not study the Bible as as people uh, scrutinizing a book for insights into the, uh, the distant past, but rather we should approach it as people who are desperate to see the God in that book uh, of whom we're reading move mightily in the present. So we don't approach it like cold scholars. Second, we don't approach it like, uh, like casual admirers. We don't approach it like casual admirers. I, I fit kind of in this category concerning some things. Um, there are people who study certain parts of history that are more like hobbyists than scholars. Um, they have a particular interest in one facet of history. Uh, and I have these things too. Um, things like the Civil War or World War II or um, New York Yankees baseball, and you that's kind of your thing. You like to study the past and read about it and learn about it, and, uh, and, and, and so you visit maybe museums or collect little antiques or memorabilia that are related to that thing. Um, but these admirers of history, sort of hobbyists as it relates to one part of history, uh, rarely dive deep into the contents of history and, and how, it, how it fits and how it connects. And even more seldom do they let those things transform their lives in the present, other than maybe just spending too much time doing it, um, that it has actually uh, changed their worldview, changed their perspective, changed their thoughts on, on reality. Uh, and so we must move. We can't, we can't approach the book of Acts and the study of, of the New Testament and the, the, the birth of the church and the expansion of the church we can't approach it merely like a hobbyist who just is kind of interested in seeing, hey, that's pretty cool what they did in the early church. That's really neat. Um, we must read it, and not just as a lightly scan, but, God, how are you transforming me? What are you convicting me of? What are you showing me as I read this history, as I read what you did in the early church? What are you teaching me? What are you showing me? What are you changing in me? So we don't approach it like cold scholars. We don't approach it like casual admirers, but instead... We approach the book of Acts like committed soldiers. Um, If you've served in the military or studied military history, you know that good soldiers are known to study history too. Uh, Good soldiers do that to become better soldiers, to learn from the past, uh, to to inform their their present. And good soldiers know uh, deep down, fundamentally, that there's much to be done, and they see themselves as a part of a mission that's been taking place, that they're coming along and and fulfilling and continuing, right? Uh, And so we need to approach acts like good soldiers. This is our attitude. This is not merely the history of the early church. It's the history of the church's mission, and we are a part of that mission. Their mission is our mission. And so we dive into this book to better serve our king as his soldiers. He's sending us out in the same mission, with the same command, and with the same ends in mind, 
And so that's, that's how we approach Acts. And that's been my prayer for us is that as we as a church come to this book, we would take it seriously and we would be reading and studying at, at home on our own time and asking God to inform our hearts and minds. And then we come together in this room. It's sort of like a rally party for the army. Like this is what God's called us to do as his people. Let's understand it and go do it. Not just let's understand it for the sake of understanding. Does that make sense? And so to that end, I've given you some little cards. Uh, you, you, you see they're like little business card sized cards and I really apologize the the font on the back is tiny 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 and we didn't realize that till they were shipped to us so you you may need a magnifying glass to read it uh, but if you can read it here's what it says it's a little I think it's printed on your notes as well maybe in a little bigger font Um, uh, so I apologize for the small font but here's that card and and let me give give you the reason for giving you that first you can you can place this thing um, as a bookmark in your Bible so that every time you open the book of Acts, you've got these four prayers on this little card and you can pray them for yourself and for this church as you study and read the book of Acts. I think that's a phenomenal thing to do with it. Uh, so you can stick it in your Bible. You can hand it to somebody as an invite and say, hey, we're studying the book of Acts at church. Why don't you come and join us? You could use it as an invite. Uh, but here are the prayers on the back of it. And, and I want to read through these because this has been my prayer for myself and for us as a church as we've been preparing for, for studying this book. Number one, renew my devotion for the church. What we see when we study the book of Acts is that God is building his church. It's his work, and he's using us. I don't want to get too much into the sermon this morning, but he's using us. He's building with human bricks his church, his people. And, uh, and, And so you can't read the book of Acts and not see how he's just fanning into flame the church. That's what's, that's what's growing. That's what's expanding at the risk of people's lives. By the blood of martyrs, the church is, is growing. And so I pray as we read this, we would say, God, would you renew my devotion to this church? God, make me a part. Make me active. Make me uh, sold out for your mission. So number two, renew my dependence upon prayer and my reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Do we depend upon God in prayer like our life depends upon it? Do we seek his face in the morning like my day depends upon it? Um, I pray that would be one of our outcomes as we see the church go forth. You'll see how integral part the uh, prayer is in that. Um, and, and I pray that that would fuel our fire for prayer. I don't think it's coincidence that Victor uh, has led us now that we're back in one service for the summer. And it's a bit easier to have prayer time uh, before our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. I encourage you to be a part of that. Um, 840, is that right, brother? 845? So we start Sunday school at 9 o'clock. Uh, I think the best way that you could use the 15 minutes before Sunday school, um, if you want to get coffee, you can get coffee, but the best way that you could spend that 15 minutes is on your knees before the Lord. God, change my heart today. Make me dependent upon prayer and, and, and relying upon your Holy Spirit for everything I do. Uh, number three, renew my zeal for the proclamation of Jesus. God, give me a passion for proclaiming your excellencies. And, 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 and certainly I would love your prayers and proclaiming it from behind this pulpit, but that's for you, that, that as you go to your workplace and your neighborhood and your community and your, your, your home, that, that you would be a proclaimer, that you would have a passion and a zeal to talk about Jesus. That's what that means, um, to speak a good word for the Lord. And number four, renew my commitment uh, to global evangelism and mission, that as they were sent to be his witnesses, they were filled the Spirit, they received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, that we would get a vision for that, we would understand that mission, and it would, it would put a fire in our bones to do the same. That this world would be our mission field. 
not, not just across the street in Bun, that's certainly part of it, but in Baltimore and in Malaysia and in Uganda and in places all over this planet that we would be striving and working for his mission. Could you imagine what God could do if we were praying these four things together for the next year as we studied this book? I believe God could transform our lives and this church. So let me pray for us. Uh, I'll stick around if you want to ask any questions. I don't know that I can answer them, but I can try. Uh, But let me pray for us, and there will be time to go to the restroom, get any refreshments that you need back in the fellowship hall, and then we'll come back in here and we'll do it again. All right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts and uh, your faithful servant, Luke, uh, who penned it. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes it alive for us, who uses it to change our hearts, to lead us to repentance, to give us zeal and passion for your mission. So, God, that's what we ask. We ask that the Holy Spirit would, for Poplar Spring Baptist Church, form Christ in each and every heart. Give us a desire and a commitment to your mission. Help us to rely upon the Holy Spirit and depend upon you in prayer daily. Help us to be proclaimers of the gospel. God, I thank you for every person in this room. And God, I just expect great things. I'm excited about what you're going to do at Poplar Spring in these months ahead as we study your word. So take us from this place and let us go as as committed soldiers to the mission of our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.